And you have your Bibles open there as we walk through this passage together through these ten verses or so. I don't know if you've uh, ever been to the Biltmore House in Asheville, North Carolina, this huge state. It's incredible uh, the kind of architecture and also the kind of things that were available at that time. It's very interesting to walk through the house. But, you know, one of the most spectacular things about the house isn't the house at all, if you've ever been there. You, you may spend as much time in the gardens around the house as you would actually look in the house. You, you, you walk through these enormous gardens all the way around the house, and of course they have a winery there. And it's just amazing that the time you can spend just walking around and looking at the different pieces of the gardens around there. And of course they have little places that you can sit, little benches. So if you come across some kind of scene that you like more than another, and you can just kind of sit there and just for a few minutes, maybe 30 minutes, and just absorb the beauty of the flowers or the scenery around. Last week and this week, we're walking through an enormous garden. The size of which we cannot appreciate. It's a beautiful, beautiful garden. And we don't have time to look at every little place. We've just had a few moments here and there. We, we're just taking a moment to sit on this bench and just to, to observe something that's happening in this particular garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And so I want to take three different stops along the passage this morning and just make some observations. Let's just sit together and look at a few verses and, and allow just the scenery to, to come into your mind, to, to be captured by what's happening in this particular garden. And the first stop I want to take is in verse 42 and 43. Jesus has been agonizing in prayer, which we saw last week. John and James and Peter have continued to hit the snooze button, and they haven't responded to getting up to pray. And finally, Jesus comes over and he says, rise, my betrayer is at hand. And while Jesus was, st- was still speaking, Judas came. And then you see this phrase, it's 43, he was one of the twelve. The betrayer. And then this phrase kind of hangs in this garden. He was one of the twelve. It's, it's like sitting there and looking at what you knew was a beautiful piece of fruit. But the wind shifted directions and you got a whiff of the fruit and now you could tell... It was rotten. Judas was one of the twelve. It's generally accepted that Mark's gospel was written by Mark, but through the lips of Peter. And so I'm wondering, as Peter sort of remembering this event in the garden, 
he, he's, he's stopping to pause and he's remembering, yeah, I was so, I was so sleepy. And then Jesus came and he, and he said, look, it's my betrayer. And as, I, and as I turned and looked in the direction that Jesus was facing, out of the darkness came Judas. And maybe in some sort of disbelief, Peter kind of whispered, He was one of us. Of all the people that I thought would step through that darkness, one of us. One of us is the betrayer. Judas had made incredible sacrifices to follow Jesus for the three years of Jesus' ministry. Judas has witnessed all the incredible miracles that the other disciples had seen. Judas had sat and listened to all the incredible teaching that Jesus had given. Judas was one of the early missionaries. Remember when Jesus sent his disciples out two by two. And they're to go out to the people in Jerusalem and Judea and the surrounding area and tell the Jews of the great news that the Messiah has come. And Judas gets paired up with somebody and they go out and, and people respond to their message. Judas was included in that group. And I would assume from the point of everybody who knew Judas, from the viewpoint of everyone who knew Judas, Judas was a believer. He was one of the twelve. He was one of us. From our vantage point, we just couldn't tell. And so when we stop in this little spot, in this verse in the garden, I'm left with the question that I'm sure you're asking to some degree. How does that happen? Could it happen to me? I mean, could an insider somehow so quickly become the outsider? And if you look back in some of the earlier pieces of the gospel, both here in Mark and in John specifically, you can see that something began to to worm its way in into Judas's life. Something got planted in Judas's life and just began to destroy it little by little. I don't know if any of you ever grow a vegetable garden in the summer, and I've done it a few times. And when I get out there, I plant my seeds, I make the rows, I plant the seeds, and then pretty much for like, you know, every day for two months, I just pour miracle grow on this, these things. And so I'm just expecting these, you know, sort of nuclear kind of plants to come up. And sure enough, one, one year I had some squash and zucchini plants. And I don't know if you know what these plants look like. I know what you, you, the fruit looks like, but the plants have these big green leaves. And then sort of at the base, there's these really very beautiful flowers that come out that eventually becomes the fruit. And so I'm Mr. Miracle Grow out there every day. Huge plants, big dark green leaves, big bright flower. I'm like, this is going to be awesome. Now, I, my kids didn't think it was all that awesome, and my wife didn't. 
they think all this work and squash is what three cents a pound at Food Lion, and you spent two hundred dollars for Miracle Grow. It just didn't somehow work in her economy. But I'm I'm looking at these things and I'm just I'm just gushing over them. And then I notice uh, just a couple of days they're sort of fading. And so Mr. Miracle grows out there again and they just start fading some more and I could tell they're dying. But I couldn't tell why. And so I, I do a little research and they say, you know, quite often a little fly comes around and plants an egg right in the stem of the plant, right at the base of the plant, a little a little larva. And if it gets in there and, the, and you don't apply the right kind of uh, insecticide, it'll start eating away at that stem. And I was thinking, not my plant. So I go down there and I, I see a little hole in the stem and I crack open the stem and this big, fat, white, slippery grub is just eating for all he's worth. And he's completely hollowed out the stem and he's robbed the rest of the plants from the nutrients. He was, he, he was imperceptible to me. He got planted so tiny in this great flower, this great plant. And what we see in Judas's life, something tiny got planted in his life. And instead of taking the appropriate measures to exercise that out, it ruined him. If you looked at John 12, you would see and you would know that Judas was the treasurer of the disciples. So somehow the, the disciples collected money and one person had to hold it. And that was Judas. Apparently, Judas had the habit of taking some of that money for himself. And I don't know, but my guess is it was just a little bit at first. I mean, you know, kind of part of being the treasurer, don't, shouldn't you get a little bit out of it for yourself? Or maybe just, hey, I just need a little bit right now, but as soon as I get some, I, I'm going to repay it. I mean, you don't need to worry about that. I'll, I'll get the money back to you guys. I don't think it was much at first. I, I think it was like a tiny little egg that got planted in Judas's life. And so when you fast forward, the worm begins to grow in Judas's life. And when the woman comes, remember the woman with the expensive jar? And she breaks open the jar. It's worth a whole year's wage. And she pours it on Jesus, who's the very first disciple to respond. Judas. What a waste! This money could have been used for a number of other ways. Namely, the poor could have been served. You know what Judas is really saying to Jesus? Imagine this picture. The woman comes. She's giving all that she has to Jesus. And Judas, right next to Jesus, says, This is a waste. Do you hear what he's saying to Jesus? Jesus, 
I know better what to do with resources than you do. I'm smarter than you. My ways make better sense than your ways. Please move over, Jesus, and let me run the purse. I need to be in charge here. Do you see how a tiny, just a tiny little egg began to consume Judas? And now fast forward here. Now Judas is consumed that now Jesus needs to move over. Judas doesn't just need to be control of the money. He needs to be control of everything. And it's not many days later that for just 30 pieces of silver, Judas sells his soul and sells out the Savior. Derek Thomas, preacher in his sermon, says this about this text. How can someone in Judas's position ever come to this? Is it possible that you or I could ever be brought to this? Could we ever sell out our Lord for 30 pieces of silver? You know, I doubt that six months before Judas ever, ever would have believed that he would be doing this now. The doctrine of eternal security is that the elect of God will persevere to the end. But it's possible to be a believer in the eyes of the church and fall away. Do you understand what I'm saying? That you can give an outward profession of faith. You can pass the criteria of the elders of the church. You can even fool yourself. I think this phrase, one of the twelve, is meant to scare us to death. I think it's meant to say to us, make your calling and election sure. Don't be too quick to rest on past experiences of grace. Are you trusting with all of your heart? And soul in Jesus. Are you repenting of your sins? So when we stop together as we walk through the garden and as we sit and look at these verses, the question that we need to ask ourselves anything working in your life? Any tiny Little thing that you've let in that doesn't look like much right now because the outside still looks flowery and still looks healthy. But some little thing is is in there that in five years or in 10 years or in 25 years, it'll hollow you out and you have sold out the Savior. If 30 years from now, we had a little reunion, would it be said of you? Would it be said of me? You know, he was one of us. But not anymore. The little picture is meant, I think, as Thomas says, to really cause us to ask us these kinds of questions. Well, let's walk a little further in the garden and take a look at another few verses. You see in the verses in this passage, there's a lot of mentioning about guards and swords and clubs. Look at uh, verse 43. 
Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Verse 47. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and he struck the servant. In verse 48, Jesus says, Have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? In the passage we're talking about, what's happening here in Jerusalem is the Passover. So thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Jewish people are coming back to Jerusalem. And when all these nationals come back to Jerusalem, there's a pretty big uprising in this sort of nationality. And and should we form again and be a nation and and get rid of the Romans? And there were very the the Romans were very aware that any uprising might come with these thousands of Jews coming back into Jerusalem. So they were on sort of high alert. It was uh, code red or whatever those codes are out there for terrorism. They, they knew that all kinds of people are coming into the city. And if there's any sign of an insurrection, any, any sign of a, a rebellion, we're going to get the troops in there right away. And Judas comes with a Roman army. Apparently thinking he was going to have to deal with some kind of uprising. So he br- brings people with swords and Clubs, And on the one hand, if you think about it from Judas's perspective, this whole scene should have seemed ridiculous. I mean, think about Judas walking into the garden with some soldiers with clubs. What, what is it that Judas has already seen? Judas was on the boat that was capsizing that Jesus stood up and said, be still. And the wind and the waves obeyed Jesus. Why wasn't Jesus, or Judas thinking, goodness, if I walk into here, the same person who calmed the wind and the waves might just blow one up right here in front of us. And this whole army of people with clubs would just immediately be blown away. Judas was there when the lame, who'd been lame for their whole lives, suddenly they could walk. Why wasn't he thinking that somehow the walking people coming into Jesus' presence, he might just say, you're all lame. Or the blind man that can now see that Judas saw, why doesn't he say, well, he could just make us all blind right now. And so it seems on one hand ridiculous that Judas would think that Jesus' mission could possibly be stopped by any human endeavor. The second thing, and sort of on the other hand, you see that Judas coming with soldiers, with clubs and swords, with obviously some sort of expectation that there's going to be some armed resistance from the disciples means or it shows that Judas doesn't understand Jesus's mission at all. Judas has completely missed what Jesus's mission is. Verse 48, Jesus says, have you come out as against a robber? In the NIV it says, am I leading a rebellion 
the, the word robber here is just not a common thief. It's, it's somebody who's a revolutionary. And so Jesus is looking around at this scene and he's asking Judas and everybody else, am I leading a revolution? And what's the answer? Is Jesus leading a revolution? Is he coming in to overturn a kingdom and put in a new kingdom? And the answer is, yes, he is. But it's just not like the one that Judas is thinking about. And it's actually not like the one the disciples are thinking about. Judas is operating underneath the principles of this world. If you have the military power, if you have the political power, if you have the money, then you get to get to be, you get to be in control. If you're on top, you get to be the king of the hill. How many of you all, and probably males, have played, this is a great game, king of the hill? You ever played king of the hill? I mean, it is, it's really an awesome game. I particularly liked king of the hill as a, as a kid. You know the idea, you get up on some kind of mound, it could even just be like a bed. When we were out in Haiti, they played it on a floating dock. I'm looking at for somebody who was at that. There's a little floating dock out there. And the idea was, one person gets on the dock, or one person gets on the bed, or one person gets on the hill, and everybody's trying to get at the top. And what does the king do? This is the fun part. You do whatever you can, just throw them off the hill. And I, I had a certain advantage as a kid to being king of the hill. When my friend said, hey, let's get in a foot race, I was like, no way. How about king of the hill? I like that one. And that's what's happening here. That's, that's what Judas is underneath here. He's underneath that principle that to be king, you have to, you have to be on top. You have to be the strongest. You have to have the right political power. You have to have the right military. You have to have the right amount of money. You have to be the person who's in control. But Jesus is really the only true revolutionary. You see what happens when you play king of the hill? It's not really any different. It's just a different king. The structure hasn't fundamentally changed. It's just the person on top has changed. And so it's not really a revolution. But Jesus is coming in as a real revolution because he's just not putting a new person into power. He's putting a new kind of power into power. Jesus isn't just coming in and saying, I'm putting a new king on the throne. He's saying, I'm putting a new power at work. There's a power that you all don't understand. And I'm putting that into work. And what is that power? Turn back with me to Mark chapter 10, 35. We've been here several times in our look at Mark. And Jesus has mentioned it several times in the Gospels. We're just going to pick up on one of them here, Mark 10, 35. Listen to James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They come up to Jesus. They have this idea. They have this king of the hill idea of who gets the power. Teacher, verse 35, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. 
What do you want me to do for you? What kind of administration are you guys under? What kind of power are you looking for? And what do James and John says? We want the positions of power. We want to be at your right and at your left. We want to be the people on top. Verse 41, to make sure you don't think James and John were the only ones thinking this idea. And when the, the other ten heard it, they began to be indignant with James and John. How, who gives you the right to sit at the right and to the left? What about me? I need to be on top. I need to be in control. And so, Jesus, I just love this picture in verse 42. He, he calls a huddle. He gets his disciples around. He says, okay, guys, huddle up. You guys are running the wrong play. And so we need to get back in a huddle. You need to hear me call the right play, and then we'll break, and then we'll all go run the right play. Okay, great. Let's get the huddle. And here he goes in verse 42. And Jesus calls them together. He says, okay, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Yeah, we know that. We're ready for our turn. That's what we're doing here. Not so with you. I want you to appreciate the weight of that little phrase right there. You know how this world works? The power of this world? Yes, we do. We like it. We're trying to get all the money. We're trying to get all the political power. We're trying to have all the military power. That's how you determine what happens in this world. And Jesus looks at him and says, not so with you guys. That's the wrong play. I'm calling a different play. I'm putting a different kind of power into power. Whoever would be great among you, man, I'm interested. Whoever wants to be first, sign me up. That's exactly what I've been living my life for. To be great and to be first. Jesus, tell me how it works. If you want to be great, you've got to be a servant. If you want to be first, you have to be a slave. Can you just hear the air escaping in these big egos of the disciples? These big egos who want to sit at the right and the left. Jesus just comes in and goes. I'm running, Jesus says, a different kind of play. And if you want to get in my huddle, if you want to get on the the right field, if you really want to exercise eternal influence in this world, you have to run a different kind of play. And I'm wondering at just this particular point what Judas might have thought to himself as they broke the huddle. (laughs) It's ridiculous. He has no idea what he's talking about. Stupid. Doesn't he get it? No no kingdom operates this way. I mean, no kingdom of this world. What does Jesus say? My kingdom? It's not in this world. 
If you just want your life to be here, you've got to go for it here. But if you want your life to be eternal, you've got to run my play. Judas isn't going to run that play. And it's not just Judas who's trying to run a different play. It's Peter. You see what Judas is trying to do? He is trying to use the ways of the world to conquer Jesus. He really thinks he's going to bring clubs and swords and he's going to conquer Jesus. And what does Peter think? He, Peter thinks, I'm going to promote Jesus. He's not trying to conquer Jesus. Right? He's trying to defend. We can give Peter credit here. He's the only one who stands in there for Jesus at this particular point. But he's trying to promote Jesus by what means? By the same means. He pulls out a sword himself. And he says, I'm going to promote Jesus by cutting off people's heads. You're not going to conquer Jesus, nor will you promote Jesus by using the ways of the world. Jesus says it himself, for the Son of Man did not come to be, to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. If you want the world to be changed, if you want Jesus to be seen, If you want Jesus to be promoted, then love your enemies. You want Jesus to be seen? Do not repay evil for evil. It's not money. It's not military power. It's not the politicians who are implementing a revolution. The real power... The people who are really turning over this world are followers of Jesus Christ who are willing to lay down their life for their enemies. That's the play that Jesus is calling. And I got to this point in this passage and I said to myself, I see that. I see Judas Betraying Jesus by using this power. I see Peter struggling not to use the power. And I look at myself and say, I've grown up in a culture that's king of the hill. And as much as I see it, I struggle to find a, to, how do you have the power to live it out? I mean, if I left off the sermon right now, you would say, I understand, preacher, what you were talking about. But how do I go about and make that happen in my life? How do I really bring in a different kind of power to power? And I think the answer is in our last stop in the garden. Verse 32. All the disciples went to a place called Gethsemane. Verse 50. They all left him and fled. Everybody enters the garden. And 18 verses later, everybody's gone. Jesus stands alone. Mark seems to even highlight it by 
this one person, these sort of odd verses, 51 and 52. Somebody, not a disciple, most commentators actually think it's Mark himself. Somehow is lurking around in the garden. And one of the soldiers sees him and says, well, let's get this guy. And they grab his linen cloth. And what's underneath? Not a lot, apparently. And the guy runs from the garden with no clothes on. Ashamed, naked. Jesus stands in the garden by himself, none of the disciples. And he's facing the tip of a sword. It's not just a Roman sword. You know what other sword he's facing? Jesus is in the garden, standing by himself, facing a sword. A sword that's been guarding a garden for thousands of years. Genesis 3:23. So the Lord God banished Adam and Eve from the garden. They fled naked from the garden. And after God drove them out, he placed on the east side of the garden an angel who had a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This sword is the sword of divine justice. You can't get back in the garden without going through the sword. But the problem is everybody's fled out of the garden. Everyone has fled from the presence of God. Everyone here has in some manner said, God, move over. You're not running the world very well. And I'll sort of just get you involved when I need help. But otherwise, I'm okay. I'm taking care of business myself. I'm in charge. And the creature has rebelled from the creator. And we all deserve a sword of divine justice. But what I want you to see in the garden, this garden, and you really need to stop and you need to take as much time as you can to take it in. And that is that Jesus is standing alone because there is not anyone righteous. No one can stand and absorb the sword of divine justice. Except for Jesus, the perfect Son of God, Jesus, was willing to run the play that God the Father Almighty called. And that was that the Son of Man would come, not to, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The real king walks to a different hill and dies on the hill. He doesn't stand up and shake his muscles. He stands up and he gets stretched out on a hill. 
and he takes a sword that you and I can't take so that we might have eternal life. You and I, there's a way back in to the garden. And it's not through the sword of divine justice. It's through the love of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the good news. I'm talking to a friend right now. He's 32 years old. He doesn't know anything about God. But he's nervous that there's something out there. And he realizes he doesn't want to get to the end and not know that something. And why is he nervous? I ask him, what makes you nervous? I know my own life. Whatever's out there, I could not stand underneath his judgment. I would like to find out who's out there. The power to live differently is by standing in this garden and seeing yourself as the person who run, who ran out of the garden without any clothes on. When you see Jesus standing alone and taking the sword, not for other people. Don't see Jesus in the garden taking the sword for other people. See Jesus in the garden taking the sword for you. When you see that his death is a consequence of your betrayal, not Judas's betrayal, not the Romans, not the Jewish people, your betrayal. When you see Jesus taking the sword, when you see that he alone takes that on your behalf, then you're free. You're free to serve. Military power, money, political power, political influence, all of those things begin to lose their grip because you've been gripped by a completely different power. The king, the king came and died on that hill for you and I. And so all of our future, all of our identity, all of our wealth are wrapped up now in Jesus. And because of it, we can recklessly give our life away. We can be recklessly generous with forgiveness, with money, with time. If we go back... And we sit in these places just for a moment. And you sit in this first little bench. And I ask you to ask yourself, is there any little thing that's working its way into your life? The second place that we sit. Do you see that there's a new power? 
that Jesus is coming and saying, it's not the king of the hill anymore. Real power is promoting other people before yourself. You don't have to have your way anymore. You don't have to have the last word anymore. You can promote other people ahead of yourself. Do you see that? Finally, do you see Jesus alone in the garden? Do you see yourself fleeing from the garden in shame? And that he alone's taking that sword for you and for me. Let's pray together. Lord, this is a powerful, potent place, the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a garden that's bigger than we could imagine. The treasures in it are more numerous than we can spend our time talking about. And so I pray that we would see this garden this week. We would see that we all fled. We would see that you stayed. That the king, the real king, came and did conquer a hill that none of us could conquer. So that we might be ushered back in to the garden of your presence where there is life. Lord, thank you for your many gifts. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your people that joined the church today. We thank you for the money that you've put in our wallets. And I would pray that your word would go forth. You would use your, your resources, your people, our finances to proclaim this great news to this city and around the world as we are enabled. In Jesus' name, amen.